0: Well, good morning. How about that second-to-last song we just sang? And Atia Sinclair, my gosh, man, so good! I'm excited to preach after that. Like that got me. I'm, I'm ready to roll. Hey, turn in your Bibles now with me to First Corinthians chapter one. First uh, Corinthians chapter one. We're going to be in the in verses ten through seventeen this morning. If you're joining us online, uh, welcome to you, a special welcome. We know that people from all over the country have been watching these services since we've been broadcasting, so it's great to have you wherever you are. I hope the ministry of the Word this morning will bless you wherever you are. And if you're here, man, isn't it great just to be here in person? These, these last several months that we were apart were just awful, um, and it's been so good to gather uh, in person uh, and be able to do that again. That's what the church does. We are a gathered assembly. We're a people that come together to sit under the preaching of the word and sing and pray and respond and encourage one another and pray for one another and rebuke one another and fellowship with one another. And that's what the church does. And it's so good to be with you this morning. And anytime I get a chance to preach to and for you, it's an honor. And so today I'm finishing Robert's series on faith and culture. Uh, and Robert is hiking the Rocky Mountains in Colorado and asked me to preach on division. In 2020, hope he enjoys his vacation and doesn't sprain his ankle. I'm just kidding. Hope he's he's earned his vacation. But there's not a topic I don't think that we could think of that would be more relevant or um, pertinent today. It's everywhere. If we look at our world and we look at our current national climate, division is characteristic of where we are. We're deeply divided among many things and along many lines. Here's a few. You ready? Old Miss or State. Actually, you know what? You're both wrong because Florida State's the right answer. Wearing a coat and tie to church or shorts and a t shirt. Raising hands in worship or remaining reverently stoic. Continuation of spiritual gifts like speaking in tongues or cessation of those types of gifts. Christian liberty with alcohol. Or total abstinence, Calvinism or Arminianism, mask or no mask, Democrat, Republican, 1776 or 1619, Black Lives Matter or All Lives Matter, we're divided. The Apostle Paul has a lot to say about division in many of his letters, especially to the Corinthian church. He addresses them pointedly on that topic because if you name a problem a church could have, Corinth had it. If you name a problem that a city or a town or an area, a a geographic area could have, Corinth had it. Corinth was a deeply immoral place. It was a seaport And so ideologies and philosophies and religions from all over the world and all over the region came through Corinth and made their way into the church. There were multiple pagan temples in Corinth, um, many of whom employed the, um, we'll make this PG, but cult prostitution was the way that worship was conducted in that, and that culture made its way into the church. There were racial problems between Jewish believers and Gentile believers, There were social problems between rich believers and poorer believers. There were theological problems between those who held to certain doctrines and those who did not. There was incest, yeah, in the church. And of a particular type that wasn't even tolerated among the pagans. That was going on inside the Christian church at Corinth. People used their spiritual gifts to elevate their own status or to look down on others. People used the Lord's table at Holy Communion as an instance to gluttonously indulge in food or get drunk on wine. And then on top of all that, the church had developed factions related to who their favorite preachers and teachers were or thought leaders were. If you didn't follow a specific teacher that this person followed, you were ostracized. And this group looked down on that group. And this group said, you're not spiritual enough. People identified themselves with who they followed. Sound familiar? They excluded other believers that didn't agree with them. And as a result, there was much conflict. And the church suffered deeply. So, with that background, let's look at the text. I want to draw out three things from the text this morning. You know I went to a Baptist seminary, so day one, three-point sermon, here's your diploma. <laughs> but I want to look at Paul's appeal, Paul's assessment, and Paul's solution as he addressed division in the church and the bitter divides that hurt Christian fellowship and unity. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Huh. This is God's word. Divisions everywhere. We've already listed several issues that divide us. All it takes these days is to have a slight disagreement with somebody on whatever issue, and it's enough to look down on that person with contempt and complete disregard, or even worse, to completely try and destroy their life. If you disagree with me, I want nothing to do with you for the rest of forever. Isn't that how it goes? Isn't that why we have Twitter? Don't get on Twitter. (laughs) Delete Twitter. Rant over. Okay. For all of our technological advancement, all the information we've accumulated, all the, all the knowledge we've gained as a human race, everything we've learned through the centuries, dividing ourselves from those with whom we disagree is still a major problem. It was for Corinth and we haven't progressed. So how can we as a Christian church move past our disunity and into unity? Paul's appeal, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, what an interesting verse. Paul's appeal is for the believers in Corinth to agree. And if you stand back from that verse and look at it for a second, no doubt several questions will arise. And they they did for me as I was preparing this. What did Paul mean by appeal? Why did he appeal to the church in the name of Jesus? What does he mean by being united in mind and judgment? Did he mean that there was to be no difference of opinion ever? Did he mean that all had to think alike just like you would find in a cult? Was Paul calling them to some sort of obscure party line that everyone needed to memorize and be able to recite from rote memory? The word Paul used for appeal in verse 10 is is the word, I don't say Greek words a lot, but this one's important. Parakaleo is the word that Paul uses for appeal. That word means to call alongside, much as a helper or a comforter would do. In fact, it's the same word that Paul and several other New Testament writers use to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. In older commentaries and older Christian books, you might see the Holy Spirit referred to as our paraclete. You don't really, you understand why we don't use that word much anymore. It's just, it's too close to the bird. But much as a helper would do, this is is what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer. He comes alongside us and he comforts us in our Christian walk. And that's what Paul's doing to Corinth. He's coming alongside this divided Corinthian church in order to bring peace and comfort. Who doesn't need that? Can we have too much comfort? Can we look at our world? Can we open our phones and pull up whatever headline, go turn on the TV at home, and say, yeah, this world's got too much comfort. There's too, we don't need any more comfort. That's why Paul appealed to the church in Corinth rather than commanding them. They already had so much discord. They had so much disunity. Paul's like a wise father who knows with his kids to, when he needs to bring the hammer and when he needs to get down on their level and take his child's face in, their, in his hands and say, listen, let me help you. Let me come alongside you. So in Galatia... When Paul wrote Galatians, their problem was false doctrine. There were false teachers teaching things that were antithetical to the gospel, and Paul brought the hammer. He started on like level 10 and didn't come down. But in Corinth, he says, I'm going to come alongside you, and I'm going to comfort you. The Corinthian church needed to be comforted and healed from the bitter divisions that were tearing apart their fellowship. And what I find striking is that Paul makes that kind of appeal in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by doing this, he is evoking the very character and nature of our Lord. What is Jesus' nature and character? In other words, what is his heart like? And why does that matter that Paul links that type of appeal to the Corinthian church? So, Here's Jesus' nature, right? So here's what the Bible says. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the preeminent eternal God, the firstborn of all creation, the second person of the Trinity, co-equal with God the Father and God the Spirit, fully God, fully man, who was incarnate on earth by the virgin birth, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary atoning death, was buried, raised again, securing life and eternal life life and justification and the blessed hope for all who believe. That is Jesus' nature. But what about his heart? What about his character? What's that like? Well, Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 11, verse 28 and 30. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So hands down, the best book I've read in 2020 has been a book by Dane Ortland. Dane is the um, editor of Crossway Publishing. He's the president of Crossway Publishing, and he wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly this year. It's about the heart of Christ, and he, he takes what the Puritan Thomas Goodwin wrote in his book called The, 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 the Heart of Christ, and he kind of modernizes it, but he, he, he uses this verse as his thesis and he explores what the heart of Christ is like towards sinners. It's the best book I've read this year. It's an instant classic. And it's so good that I literally turned the last page, closed the book, got on Amazon, and ordered a copy for the entire staff. Go buy a copy of that, I promise. The sermon's not a commercial for that book, but you will be, it will not be wasted time for you to, if you spend time in that book. But Dane, in that book, about this verse, Matthew 11, he says this about the heart of Christ. In only one place do we hear Jesus himself open up his very heart. It's the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is. We're not told that he's austere and demanding in heart. We're not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. We're not even told that he's generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Wow, that's disarming. You see now why Paul appealed to a divided church to come alongside them and comfort them, invoking the character of Jesus who is gentle and lowly. Because this church knew very little, if nothing, of gentleness and lowliness. If that sounds life-giving and refreshing, it's because it is. Another pastor said this, in this angry world of blaming and shaming, who doesn't need a non accusing place to stand and be safe? That's Christ's heart. Yes. He is the conquering king who defeated sin and will have, he will exact perfect justice on his enemies. Yes, he is the line of Judah, the very one who at this very moment is upholding the universe by the word of his power. But his heart, his very heart is gentle and lowly. And it's on that behalf, it's on behalf of that heart that Paul appeals to the church. Now, what does Paul mean when he says agree? And to be united in the same mind and judgment. Well, briefly here, agree literally means to speak the same, and Paul's not necessarily saying that we have to speak the exact same words. We don't have to, there's not a party line, there's not a mantra that we chant or recite. Paul's saying, speak the same thing by using the same message. Paul is telling the church to affirm the same things, to uphold the same doctrines, and to be unified to their devotion to Jesus above all else and above all other allegiances. In the same way, mind and judgment here doesn't mean that we think the same thing always or always have the same opinions on external matters. But what what Paul is saying is that regarding the gospel, regarding the core of the Christian faith, core Christian doctrine that is non-negotiable, Christian beliefs, among these things there is to be no variance. If we're to be unified, we must hold to the same things, church. Church. We have the same standards for the things that really matter. The doctrines and beliefs that are essential to Christian life, we we speak the same content. We believe the same things. We hold them in unity. And hey, this can be difficult, right? I mean, I don't have to tell you that. I wouldn't be preaching on division if this was easy. There wouldn't be a chapter in the Bible to to a major church dedicated to division if that was easy especially when passions run high on various issues. But if we would have unity in the church, if we would see peace and comfort among our body, if we would be seen as those who were marked by their love for one another, if we would overcome division, we must be united in mind, judgment, speech, and actions. When we speak the same, when we hold the same doctrines and standards and avoid dividing into factions, we are aligning ourselves with the very character of Jesus Himself. And He creates that unity and that peace and that comfort. So let's agree with one another. That's Paul's appeal. Now, Paul's assessment, verse 11 through 16 for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. So now... Paul wants to assess the division in the church. He calls out their quarreling that has been reported to him by Chloe's people about who their favorite preachers, teachers, and thought leaders were. Now, obvious question who's Chloe? Who are her people? Easy answer? Not easy answer. Quickest answer? No idea. We have no clue. She may have been a church member. She may have been a prominent member of Corinthian society, either a pagan or a Christian. We have no idea. Some commentators think that she could have been a businesswoman in Ephesus. Paul wrote Corinthians from Ephesus and her people, those same commentators would say that her people were her employees doing business in Corinth and they saw the division in the church and reported it back to Paul. Some have even suggested that since the word Chloe in Greek can mean green shoot and since that the uh, the Greek goddess Demeter, who is a goddess of agriculture, green think green and plants had a temple in Corinth that was well attended that Paul is saying that hey even the pagans have heard about your division and they're reporting to me about this we don't know we just don't know whoever Chloe and her people were the point is the church had a reputation for division and fighting with one another that's not good they kept disagreeing with one another, that's, they kept disagreeing with one another, and that's what the church became known for. And what's interesting about the spirit of partisanship that developed in Corinth was that it was between teachers who affirmed the same gospel. This wasn't heretics versus orthodox. These were really, really good teachers. Paul planted the church, it was his ministry that started the church. He came in there, you can read about it in Acts, he actually came in there once, got beat up, thrown out, God told him to go back, he went back and now Corinth happens. Many were saved because of Paul's preaching. When Paul left and went to Ephesus, Apollos came. Apollos was, the, was a pastor at the church of Corinth. Paul, uh, Apollos preached the same gospel Paul did, but he was a philosophical genius who used rhetoric and um, logic and reason to explain the gospel, and the Greek believers really loved that. So he was held in high regard. We can read about Paul and Apollos' Corinthian ministries In chapter 3 in 1 Corinthians, Cephas is Peter, the Apostle Peter, one of the 12, who some in Corinth had evidently come to believe in Christ through his preaching and his message. And then, of course, Paul lists Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, hold on a second. Is Paul saying that he has a problem with people following Jesus? Of course not. Not. Given the tone of the letter and the inclusion of Christ in the list of these factions, it's likely that the quote-unquote Christ party were a group who seemed to think they had a special claim on Jesus that wasn't available to anyone else. We don't know anybody like that, do we? In other words, they followed the right teacher, but in the wrong way. Sidebar, you know it's possible to follow God in the wrong way, right? God has prescribed in his word how he will be worshiped, how he is to be worshiped, and how his work is to be done. Francis Schaeffer said that the Lord's work done in human energy is not the Lord's work any longer. It is something, but it is not the Lord's work. End of sidebar. But this is likely what the Christ party in Corinth did. They, they followed Jesus in their own way rather than in the way that they should have. They had an air of self-righteousness and they saw no value in other preachers or other teachers the Lord had sent to his church. Now, we would never do that, right? We would never divide ourselves or look down on others because of who their favorite gospel-affirming teacher or preacher is. We would never divide ourselves over preferential institutions or whatever they may be. We would never divide ourselves over political affiliation. We would never divide ourselves over race. We would never divide ourselves over our preferred style of parenting or diet or method of education or whatever else, would we? You see, Paul is getting at a much deeper issue here. The divisions in Corinth, just like the divisions that are with us today in 2020, are because people follow what they find most impressive. They follow whatever furthers their personal cause, whatever gives them the most status, whatever gives them the most reason to feel most powerful or enlightened or woke or whatever. In other words... We follow what we feel forms our own identity. John Piper once said that the soul tends to shrink to the size and quality of its pleasures. Uh, Yeah. That one's on my board upstairs. I have to look at that one every day. The soul tends to shrink to the size and quality of its pleasures. When our identity is found in any other person but Jesus or any other cause but His, we have abandoned the gospel. We can be guilty of this with really good causes, too. Remember the major factions that Paul identifies here are excellent, praiseworthy, gospel-preaching, church-building men, but nevertheless, divisions happened. Paul then puts his finger on the bleeding artery in the Corinthian church when he asks in verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? The point is that finding our identity or fulfillment or validation anywhere but in Jesus is idolatry and a form of self-salvation. By asking his rhetorical questions in verse 13, Paul is saying that true Christianity, true unity in Christ is the end of identity alignment. It's the end of identity in institutions or race or politics. True unity in Christ is the end of patronage because Jesus is not interested in being our patron. He is only interested in being our savior. Jesus himself will bring enough division. We don't need to add to it. Jesus says that as believers, we will be hated by the world simply for loving him. Jesus says that he will bring a sword dividing families between those who love him and those who don't. He will separate the wheat from the chaff. He will separate the sheep from the goats. There will be division, but it will be Jesus that does it, not us. Jesus intends to be the one that unites those who love him. And for those who do love him and are called to believe, Jesus himself intends for us as his family, as his body, as his church, to be unified. This unity can only be achieved by the gospel, where there's no Jew or Greek, there's no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, no Scythian, no slave, no free, but where instead Christ is all and is in all. Paul is calling us to give up our lesser versions of identity and to find our true identity in Jesus. Real Christian unity No matter how broken the world is, no matter how severe the issue is that we divide over, no matter how we might divide ourselves up or fight about, no matter what else may interest us or become our passionate cause, that which we wave our banner for, real Christian unity can be found in no other place than Jesus Christ himself. He is not divided, and he himself invites us into that heavenly unity with himself he is gentle, he is lowly, he is life, he is peace. That's why Paul downplays baptism the way he does in verses 14 through 16. I've always found that interesting because the Lord Jesus himself instituted two ordinances. Gosh, I'm so bad, this sacraments, ordinances, whatever you want to say, technically they're sacraments. Jesus only instituted two of those himself, Baptism and the Lord's Supper, communion. Paul's, Paul is not downplaying the, the institution of baptism. That's not his point. He's not saying that baptism as a practice doesn't matter. What he's saying is that he's reminding us that our baptism unites us and identifies us with Jesus rather than the human agent that performed our baptism. With that understanding, then, there's no one to align yourself other than Christ, leaving no room for divisions or factions. Therefore, Jesus is our only hope. Which leads to Paul's solution in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied, the cross of Christ be emptied by its, of its power. Again, Paul's not denying the importance of baptism or the command from Jesus to baptize. He's saying that his primary mission to the church in Corinth, to the Christian church, was to preach the gospels to the people there in order that they may know Jesus. Isn't it striking that he said that he didn't preach with words of eloquent wisdom? Shouldn't we want that? Shouldn't we want the most clear and rational explanation of the gospel as possible don't we need to give reasons isn't there a verse in the bible be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have don't we need to give reasons why we believe and anticipate objections with persuasive intellectualism after all that's exactly what apollos did and that's why the greek believers loved him so much because he he used rhetoric and logic to explain Jesus to people and people got saved, obviously, because he was a faithful preacher. Certainly there's nothing wrong with eloquent wisdom or carefully reasoned arguments, but that's, it's not the strength of our argument. It's not the well-reasoned, well-defended, perfectly articulated oratory that turns heart to Jesus. It's not our eloquence that unites the church and addresses the issues that divide us. That can only be done, according to Paul, by the power of the cross, the proclamation of a crucified Messiah. Paul didn't preach the gospel in a status confirming way, he wasn't seeking to set up a faction to himself. Um, he wanted the church to be loyal to, to the only church the only cause he wanted the church to be loyal to was that of the cross of christ the message of the cross rhetorical sophistication is good yes and amen but the message of the cross is antithetical to status seeking cultural expectations of what the world values as wisdom that's the entire second half of chapter one Therefore, Paul isn't saying that reason and eloquence and wisdom are bad. He's saying that they're powerless to save and powerless to heal. Paul didn't want to detract from the power of the cross because, as he says in verse 18, it's folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul knew that God would do the work of salvation in healing a divided church, Paul knew that when God's worth goes forth, it will not return void. That verse, as a preacher, gives me enormous hope. All I have to do is preach, and God will have the increase. I'm not going to try to talk you into anything. John Stott, in his excellent book, which is another book, I mean, that should be on your to-read-once-a-year list. It's just a masterpiece. John Stott recount, recalls the words of a missionary, an American missionary named Samuel Zwimmer, talking about the centrality of the cross in preaching. If, Zwimmer says this, If the cross of Christ is anything to the mind, it is surely everything the most profound reality and the sublimest mystery, one comes to realize that literally all the wealth and glory of the gospel centers here. The cross is the pivot point as well as the center of New Testament thought. It is the exclusive mark of the Christian faith. So now look at where we are today. Look at our world and look at our church. There are factions everywhere. Just like... The Corinthian believers, we have our favorite teachers and preachers. We have our favorite institutions. We have our favorite political views. We have our favorite ideas. And we're so quick to align our very identity with these things. Some of them may be very, very good things. But take an honest look at where we are. Do any of the things that we put so much hope in So much value, wrap up so much of our identity in, the things that we hold so dear that we are quite literally ready to fight for on social media or actually in the street, do we believe any of those things are even remotely on the same level as the message of the cross? A crucified Savior that baffles the worldly, self-aggrandizing intelligentsia with a call to pick up our cross daily and die to self. A message that seems so foolish and ridiculous. Can that really help save anyone? Not help save anyone, can that save anyone? Much less unite and heal profound divisions. That is precisely what Paul is saying. First two verses of chapter two, Paul says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the, message, the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This doesn't mean that that's the only message Paul ever preached, and only preached about the crucifixion and nothing else. It means, as one brilliant commentator put it, that Paul was not interested in discussing men's ideas or insights, his own or those of anyone else. He would proclaim nothing but Jesus Christ, the crucified, risen, and redeeming Jesus Christ. He did not preach Jesus simply as the perfect teacher or the perfect example or the perfect man, though he was all of those. The foundation of all of his preaching was Jesus, the divine Savior. Wow. So... Is Paul saying what it appears he's saying? Is Paul saying that the gospel itself is sufficient as a response to anything this world or life can throw at us? Unequivocally, yes. But what about factions in the church? The gospel says that God is able to give us the same mind and judgment. But what about all the anger in the world today? The gospel says that God will make us slow to speak and slow to anger. But what about all the division? The gospel unites us with Jesus himself in his death and in his resurrection. But what about fear? The gospel tells us to fear not, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. But what about politics? The gospel tells us that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But what about race? The gospel says that Jesus ransomed the people from every tribe and language and people and nation. But what about justice? The gospel tells us that we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. The gospel tells us that Jesus was oppressed and afflicted for us that God laid on him the iniquity of us all so that his soul would make an offering for our guilt and it was, that he, it was the will of the Father to crush him so that many would be counted righteous. But what about injustice? The gospel tells us that vengeance belongs to the Lord and it is his to repay. The gospel tells us that Jesus is the one who makes all things new and he himself will restore things to how they are meant to be. The gospel is the power of God, and it alone is sufficient to heal. It is sufficient to save, and it is sufficient to unify God's church from all division. I wonder what you think of that. As the Heidelberg Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism says, what is our only hope in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood. He has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also pres- pres- preserves me in a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let's be unified, church. Let's trust the gospel. Let's follow our gentle and lowly Savior and bind ourselves to his cause. It's our only hope in life and death and the only way to face the harshness of this world. Let me invite the band up and we'll pray. Lord, when we look at everything that's going on, it's easy to despair. It's easy to feel hopeless and angry and frustrated. And Lord, confess those things are in my heart. So Lord, I pray that you remind us that you are the one who unites your church. And from your church, your gospel will go forth and from your gospel, you will call a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every language that will follow you. And as we said a few weeks ago, Lord, you will build your church and the gates of hell will not, pre- will not prevail against it. Lord, give us unity. Even the good things that we wrap up our own identity in, Lord, they pale in comparison to the very heart, character, and nature of Jesus Christ. Let us see his beauty. Unify us around him. Help us, Lord. You and your gospel are our only hope in life and death. In Jesus' name, amen.